Well, my daughter Nixon turned seven years old this week. And so she had a birthday party and at her birthday, uh, she got a card with some money in it. And uh, she took out that money and she started counting those bills on the table just in front of everybody. She's like, you know, one, two, three, four, five. I mean, her face getting bigger, six, seven dollars. And here's, here's what she said to everybody. She goes, I'm rich. I'm rich. I've got seven dollars. I mean, how many of you, how, how, how many of you would just kill for that kind of childlike faith and excitement for seven dollars? I mean, isn't, isn't that wild to see a child's face light up at such a small amount of money? Man, what, what, what an incredible amount of just faith and joy and contentment with something we would all say is so small. It's insignificant, but it was everything to her. And she thought she was rich because of $7. This week too, on the flip side of that, my son Levi worked for some money this week. We have a friend that owns a business, computer technology business, goes to our church and he, uh, he invited Levi and his own son to come and to build some computers and do some things for him. And so, so he went and he made some money. And so he came home. He's like, dad, I went to work today. I was like, oh man, that's awesome. Uh, he said, I made 20 bucks. I was like, son, that is incredible. And, and you know why that is so amazing that you made $20? Because you owe your mom $20. I mean, how amazing is that? That's just from the Lord, right? And he's like, his, his, the joy in his face just melted away. He's like, What? No, 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 no. I worked for that money. I, I made that money. And I was like, yeah, I know you, you did. And good for you because you, you owe your mom 20 bucks. The, the Bible says the borrower's slave to the lender and you got to pay back your debt, buddy. So uh, thank you for that. I mean, you went to work and you earned that money so you could pay back your mom. And he wasn't too happy about that. He wasn't too excited about getting paid. And then on the same day, having all the money that he just got paid gone in an instant. And how many of you felt the same way before, or especially over the last few months, maybe even more so like the money comes in and then it goes right out and there's nothing left over, right? Or maybe you find yourself, there's more money going out than has been coming in. And you've seen your finances fall over the last few months. Trials have a way of exposing the authenticity, the, the weaknesses that are in our lives that maybe we don't even realize, we don't even see. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher said this, trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we are actually made of. And that's what trials do. And James, the brother of Jesus would say something very similar in James chapter one, that trials in the life of a mature believer uh, produce perseverance and joy as a result. Trials have a way of exposing the authenticity of our faith. Trials can also push us over that cliff that send us into the free fall, right? They can cause your faith to fall, your family, your marriage to fall, to struggle. They can cause your finances to fall. And to plummet, and many of us have been there over the past few months. Well, we've got a word for you in this series, it comes from the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 7, verse 8, says this Though I have fallen, though my faith has fallen, my family, my marriage has fallen, we talked about that last week, though my finances have fallen, I will 
rise. This is the verse for this series. So we're memorizing this verse, internalizing this verse every single week. And so let's say these three words together here in just a second. All right, ready? Though I have fallen, I will rise. All right. Now that kind of sounds like you feel like you've fallen and you can't get up. Okay. I need some, I'm going to rise kind of faith out of you. All right. So let's lean forward. Okay. Engage, participate. Okay. We're not just sitting back in your wood pew, you know, watching me kind of stand up here like an idiot. Okay. No, no, no. You're, you're engaging. We're participating together in reading God's word, hearing from God this morning. All right, let's go. Though I have fallen, I will rise. That's so much better. Turn to your neighbor again and say, rise up, rise up, yell at the person way down the row or several rows behind you or whatever that have social distanced themselves from you and rightfully so. Uh, but yell at them and say, rise up in Jesus name. We're rising up together. So though our faith has fallen, our family has fallen. Our finances may have fallen like Micah believed in his situation, in his desperation, he would write in his darkness. I believe the light is coming and I'm going to rise. So what do you do when your finances fall? How do you rise from a financial fall? Oftentimes, Oftentimes we experience a financial fall because the focus of our finances is off. Our focus is off. The, the, the heart, the vision, the goal, the mission of our finances is off and we experience a financial fall. And so here's my big idea. Here's my challenge for you today, just in line with the other ones from the previous weeks. We got to fix the focus of our finances. That's how we're going to rise from the fall. We've got to fix the focus of our finances. And I know a lot of you are saying, Clayton, the way, the way I'm going to rise, uh, from my financial falls through an increase in income, I need more money. And certainly if you've lost your job, you've got to replace that. If you've lost income, you've got to replace that or reduce your expenses, right? I mean, you've got to make more than you spend. Generally speaking, I mean, that's, that's how you're going to rise financially. But I would submit to you this morning that the way you're going to rise from the fall is not necessarily by a fixing of your income or a rise in your income level. The way we're going to rise from the fall is through fixing our focus. You see, most of the time we don't have a money problem. We've got a vision problem. We've got a focus problem. We've got a heart problem that needs to change. We've bought some lies. We've believed some lies about money, about our finances. And we need God's word this morning to expose those lies that we have bought. If we're going to rise from the fall. So if you got your Bible, go to first Timothy chapter six, you can jump on our app. Now the city church Lubbock and follow along with us. Uh, the points and verses are all there for you to follow along with us. You can fill in the blank too, as you go, it's a great way to participate and stay engaged in our time together because let's just be honest. You're kind of stuck here for a little bit, right? So you might as well get the most out of your time. Okay. If you're a chick kid, you don't, you don't have a choice. Your parents aren't going to let you leave. If you're an adult, I, you kind of got a choice, but you got to jump up in front of all these people now and leave in front of everyone. I mean, just no, we're not going to do that. So let's get the most out of our time together. All right. So let's read God's word, participate, fill in the blank as we go. This is Paul speaking to his disciple, Timothy, who is discipling other people, who's pastoring other people, who's raising up other pastors. And Paul's going to challenge his disciple and fellow pastor, Timothy, on how we need to fix the focus of our finances. A lot of us think if we can just raise our income, we're going to be happy. 
We'll be content if we can just get more money, the money maybe that we even lost. And the scripture today is going to tell you that that's a lie. We've bought a lie. So let's go. First Timothy chapter six, starting in verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world, not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable, right? I mean, money's here one day, it's gone the next. You can have a ton of money one day and it's gone the next day. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Isn't that interesting? That God is for your enjoyment. So many people who don't follow Jesus or have turned away from God feel like, man, all God wants to do is just, all he's out for is me, me to follow these rules, to keep me in line, doesn't care about me having fun, doesn't care about my joy. Listen, the scripture would tell you otherwise. That's not true. That's a lie. God is for you and he's for your enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. Be rich in good works, generous, always ready to share with others. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie. And there's a lot of lies that we have bought that God's word is going to confront in us this morning. And if we're going to rise from the fall, you can't buy the lie. You've got to believe God's truth. So here's the first slide. Lie number one, I don't have enough money. That's the first lie many of us have bought. I don't have enough money. Paul said this in first Timothy chapter six, verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world. Who's that? Who are the rich people in this world? I think all of us are probably saying, well, it's definitely not me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not rich. I'm not the rich people that Paul's talking about. It's, it's that guy that lives down the street. It's that lady that lives in that, that neighborhood on the other side of the city. Okay. It's that lady, it's that family that lives in the neighborhood next to mine. They're the rich people. And then they're saying the same thing. Oh no, 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 I'm not, I'm not rich. It's, it's that guy that lives down the street. It's that family that lives in the neighborhood across from mine on the other side of the city. I, I'm not rich. It's them. Comparison will always steal your contentment and your joy. And a wrong comparison will always skew your perspective. Paul says, teach those who are rich in this world. Like who are those, who, who are the rich people as compared to the rest of the world? You see a wrong comparison can, can skew your thinking and cause you to buy a lie. Paul says, teach those who are rich in this world. So how do you know how rich you are as compared to the rest of the world? Well, just like a lot of things today, you can Google it and you can actually find out like how rich you are compared to the rest of the world. I think most of us, after you learn here in just a second, most of you would rather not know the truth of that because it's going to be real convicting. By conservative estimates, and there's several calculators, but by conservative estimates, if you make $30,000, like combined income in your home and you live in America and you make $30,000, you are in the top 25% of the richest people in the entire world. Top 25%. If you make $60,000 combined income and you live in this country, you are in the top 10% of the richest people in the entire world. If you make $100,000, you are in the top 5% of the richest people in the entire world. Some calculators, some estimates will say you're actually in the top 1% of the richest people in the entire world. And not only that, it gets worse. <laughs> We are living in the richest and most affluent society and culture that has ever existed on the face of the planet. Ever. 
So not only are we some of the richest people on the entire planet, we are some of the richest people who have ever lived on the face of the planet, like ever in all of world history. So here's the truth. The truth is I'm one of the wealthiest people on the planet. And I know it sounds weird to say that, but just say it right now. I'm rich. I'm so rich. I'm one of the wealthiest people on the entire planet. Some of, we can't even get our mouths to say that because it sounds so crazy to us because comparison, a wrong comparison will always skew your perspective. When compared to the rest of the world, most of us, I'm not going to say all of us, but most of us are some of the richest people that have ever existed on the face of the planet. This is not something Paul would say in first Timothy chapter six. This is not something to take pride in. This is not something to be proud of. In Greek, here's what the word means. Don't be proud of this. In other words, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't have an exalted opinion of yourself because you're one of the richest people to have ever lived. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't be proud of that. In fact, it's actually a burden. And you'll see more here, why here in, in just a second, but, but this is actually a burden. This is a responsibility. You might remember Jesus saying, to whom much is given, much is expected. If you've been given much, much will be expected. You're going to have to give an account, every one of us, for being one of the richest people to have ever existed on the face of the planet. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? That we will have to give an account for being one of the wealthiest people to have ever existed. It's a burden. It's not something to be proud of. It's not something to think too highly of yourself of. It's a responsibility being that wealthy to whom much has been given, much is expected. Here's the second lie. The second lie is I need more money. The first lie is I don't have enough, which leads to the second lie. I need more. I need more money. Paul says in first Timothy chapter six, don't trust in money though, because it's so unreliable. No matter how much money you had over the past few months, whether it was in your weekly, monthly income or in your retirement, you saw a lot of that money plummet. You saw it nosedive. It's unreliable. Money is fickle to the circumstances and whims of this life and people. It, it's not reliable, Paul would say. We think money, more money, will solve our problems. We, we think a, a fix in our financial situation, our income will, will solve our problems and we'll be happy as a result. But money rarely fixes anyone's problems. In fact, a lot of times it does the opposite. It makes matters worse and it exposes more problems because of the immaturity and the foolishness that we have and the, the sin that's in our lives. A lot of times more money makes problems worse. A few verses before the ones we just read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 9 and 10, Paul says this, watch this. But people who long to be rich, who want more money, who, who, it's never enough. I need more and more and more, who aren't content with what they have. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires. That watch this, that plunge them into ruin and destruction. So this desire for more and more and more, and it's never enough. And I need more money will only serve to ruin your life 
and destroy you. Paul says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money, I need more money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. In the words of the prophet, notorious B.I.G., mo money, mo problems, right? He had no idea he was quoting a biblical truth there. Mo money, mo problems, more sorrows, more troubles. And oftentimes people that are longing for more money wander away from God, Paul would say, wander from the true faith. They wander from God. Jesus would say in a parable about a farmer spreading seed on different kinds of soils, that there was a soil where the the seed was sowed and these thorns that were in the soil choked out the seed, the plant, and killed it. And his disciples would ask, what's the meaning of this parable? What are you trying to tell us here? And Jesus would say that the seed that fell on the soil with the thorns represents those of us who receive the word of God, but the thorns of this life, Jesus would say, are the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Choke out the word that's been planted in our hearts. The deceitfulness of wealth will choke out the word of God in your life, making you unfruitful. That's what the pursuit of wealth, that's what the pursuit of money will do. That's what the love of money will do in your life. It will choke out the word of God in your life, making you unspiritual and causing you to wonder from God. That's what the desire for more will do to you. So here's the truth. The, 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 the lie is I need more money. The truth is I, I need to trust God. I need to trust in, in God, Paul would say. And, and here's why, two reasons Paul gives this. Number one, Paul says, I need to trust God in 1 Timothy chapter six because God gives me what I need. He's going to, out of his riches, give me what I need. Not necessarily what I want or, or when I want it, A good dad never does that for their kids. They never give them everything they want and when they want it, every time they, I mean, no good dad would do that. No, our heavenly father gives us what we need in the moment at the moment. He gives us what we need. And so we need to trust in our God. Jesus would say it like this. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. God will supply my needs. That's the first reason I can trust God. The second reason I can trust God with my financial problem or with my finances, Paul would say is because God is for my enjoyment. He gives me everything I need for my enjoyment. Now that does not mean there will not be trials. There won't be hardships. It doesn't mean that compared to the rest of the world that I might not be poor. But what it does mean is God is for me and he's for my enjoyment. He wants me to enjoy this life. So I can trust God because he gives me what I need and he's for me. He's not against me. As we sang in that song a little bit ago, when Jesus left this earth after spending time with his disciples and Acts one says that, that Jesus was on this earth for 40 days after he rose from the grave, eating with his disciples and talking with them. And so the disciples would say, we know he rose from the grave because we beheld him with our eyes and we touched him with our hands and we ate with him and talked with him. 
And so we know Jesus rose from the grave. It's not up for debate. No one told us, they would say. We're, we're not telling you something that, that, that we've been told. The disciples would say, no, we've touched him. We, we've seen him. We, we've spent time with him over a period of 40 days. So there was no question in their minds that Jesus rose from the grave, which is why they died as martyrs, saying we, we saw him risen from the grave. But when Jesus left this earth, he went up to heaven. And so now what is Jesus doing in heaven? Well, the Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus is now our eternal high priest and he lives to intercede for us, which means this, Jesus is praying for you. And as a advocate or a lawyer would do, Jesus is in heaven right now standing for you and pleading your case, pleading your cause. That's what Jesus is doing right now before the father. And that's why you and I can come straight to God. We don't go through anyone else. You don't go through me, your pastor. You don't go through a priest. You don't go through Mary. You go through Jesus himself to God. Paul said, told Timothy, listen, there's only one mediator between us and God and that's Jesus. There is no other mediator. It is him and him alone. There is no other mediator between us and God. That's what Paul said, except the man, Christ Jesus, the God man who bridges the gap between us and God. And so now you and I, we get to come straight to God because Jesus is standing for us and interceding for us. And we get to go straight to God, a God who is for us, who's for our enjoyment. And we get to pray and we get to cry out to him and say, God, I need you. I need your, I need your help. I can go straight to him because I've got a mediator. I've got an eternal high priest in Jesus who is for me and not against me so I can trust in God. Lie number three that we've bought. This is my money. It's my money. I get to do with it what I want. It's my money. This week when Levi worked and made the money that, that he made and, and I said, hey, you're going to pay back your mom. He's like, no, 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 no. This, this is my money. I can do with it what I want. And I, I'm, I'm saving up for this game or whatever for the switch. I don't even know what a switch is. A switch was something totally different to me when I was growing up. It wasn't something you play. It was something that got played on you, I guess. But so he, he's, he's wanting this game or whatever for the, for the switch. And um, I said, no, you're, you're going to pay your mom back. You, you owe your mom $20. Like, well, it's my money. No, it's not your money. That's a lie. You've been lied to if you believe that. And we do the same thing. We've bought a lie. We believe a lie when we think that the money that we have, the stuff that we have, that it's actually mine. It's not. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's God who richly gives us what we need. It's God's. And he gives it to us. So here's the truth. The truth is, it's God's money. It's not my money. It's God's money. It's God's to give. It's mine to manage. The word, the fancy word for this is to steward. A steward is someone who manages someone else's property or money for them. And that's what the Bible says you and I do with the money that we have and the stuff that we have. It's all God's and we're managing it for him as a steward. So when you think about a steward through the lens of scripture and with a biblical or Christian worldview, here's what a Bible dictionary says biblical stewardship is. It's utilizing and managing all resources God provides for the glory of God and the betterment of his creation. That's biblical stewardship. 
utilizing and managing all the resources God provides, my, my home, my cars, my, my stuff, the money, the savings, the retirement, all, all these things, and, and even spiritual things, the, the gifts that, that God gives us through his Holy Spirit to serve in the church and for the glory of God, all the resources that God has given us, my time, my money, my talents, my skill, my spiritual gifts, all these resources are to be used and managed for the glory of God and the betterment of his creation. And in here, you can even see, here's what a steward does. They use all the resources for the first and second greatest commandment. Remember what Jesus said the first, the first commandment is? The first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. A biblical steward. Biblical stewardship is using all of the resources that God has given you for the first and second greatest commandment for the, your, because of your love for God and your love for people. That's what a steward does. So here's what a steward always asks, a good steward. How would God want me to spend his money? It's not my money to do with what I want because I don't own it. Everything I've got has come, in, has, has come from God. He owns it, I'm his manager. So if I'm a good steward, of God's money, I'm going to ask, what would God want me to do with his money? Which leads to the fourth lie that many of us have bought is this, that I can't afford to share. I can't afford to share. I don't, I don't have enough money. There's nothing left for me to share with anyone else. And the reason a lot of us think that is because this is our financial recipe for most of our lives. It's to live Whatever's left over, I'll save. Whatever's left over from there, I'll give. For most of us, that's our recipe for life. That's our financial recipe for life. That's the focus of our finances. Living, then saving maybe, and if there's anything left, I'll give it. I'll share it with other people. And I would just challenge you with this, that that's the recipe for a fall, not the recipe for a rise. And Paul would say the same thing. He would say, you need to use your money to do good, to be generous, to always be ready to help those in need. So here's the, here's the truth. The truth is I can't afford not to share. Now, I know some of you who are teachers or grammar Nazis and you like correcting people on Facebook and all that kind of stuff with their apostrophes and their word order and all those kinds of, you know, you're saying, Clayton, you got a double negative in here. And, and, and you're right, I do. It's for emphasis. And it's to make a point. Can't and not. We've got a double negative in here. You're not supposed to do that. Well, we're going to break some grammar rules for emphasis and to make a point. You can't afford not to share. That's the message of scripture. You, you can't afford it. Most of us think we can't afford to share, but the message of scripture is you, you can't afford not to share. Now you might be thinking, <laughs> you're going to have to show, I don't know what you're talking about. You're going to have to show me this. How could I afford not to share? Listen, it's costly to share. It is. It's costly to, to give to people in need. You're, you're having to sacrifice of yourself, of your, of your heart and money. It's a sacrifice. There's no question. It's more costly not to. It is more costly not to. And I'll prove it to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul uses the lifestyle and the faith of these Macedonian Christians, these Christians, the church in Macedonia, to challenge some Christians, the church in Corinth. And so he uses their example, 
and in their life and their faith to, to challenge them. Watch what he says here about these Macedonian Christians. Second Corinthians eight, verse one through five. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through these churches in Macedonia, through the Christians in Macedonia, they are being tested by many troubles. And many of us say, hey man, I, I totally get that. that. That's where I've been. I've been really tested over the past few months, financially, especially. They are being tested by many troubles and watch this. And they are very poor. Some of you are like, I, I feel, I know you're telling me I'm one of the richest people ever claimed, but, but I feel really poor right now. I feel very poor. Watch what he says. But they are also filled with abundant joy. Whoa, what? You, you can be very poor and have abundant joy? Are you, are you serious, Paul? I mean, everything our society and culture preaches is the opposite. You, you can't be happy and you can't have joy or peace in your life if, if you're not rich. You, you can't be happy and poor. What are you talking about? You can't, you can't have joy and be poor. I mean, the American dream almost is the opposite of this. You can't be happy and poor. Well, Paul says these Christians in Macedonia, that they're very poor, but they're overflowing. They're, they're filled with this abundant joy that, watch this, overflows into rich generosity. These very for, poor people have this overwhelming, abundant joy, and they are filled with this desire to be generous. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, they gave what they couldn't afford. Why? And they did it of their own free will. They were happy to. Watch this. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing. They begged to do it. How many of us have ever begged to share with someone in need or to share with the, for, the, for the sake of the spread of the gospel? I mean, how many of us are begging to be generous? They were begging again and again for the privilege of sharing and the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. And they even did more than we had hoped for their first action. You see that? Number one, their first action, their, their, their first thought, the focus of their finances, watch this, was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. You can't afford not to share because you are missing out on the joy and the privilege of sharing with those in need and supporting the spread of the gospel. You're missing out. We're missing out. When we don't share, we're missing out on overwhelming, abundant joy that money and stuff will never give you. It will never give you. We are missing out. We can't afford not to share. So watch this. Generosity will drive a stake in the heart of idolatry and will enable you to experience true prosperity. True prosperity is not money and stuff and houses and cars and, and private jets and, and all this. That's not true prosperity. I mean, that's even what some American Christianity is preaching. And it is a lie. True prosperity is not money and stuff. True prosperity is an overwhelming and abundant joy. That's true prosperity. And only generosity can give you that. Only sharing is going to give you that. You're, you're missing out. You can't afford not to share. 
And it's amazing how being generous, how starting to share with those who are in need, how starting to support the spread of the gospel will just drive a stake in that lie in our hearts, the idolatry that's in our hearts. and will enable us to experience a true prosperity. C.S. Lewis, popular author and theologian said this about generosity. I, I do not believe one can settle about how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements is up to the standard common among those of the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charities expenditures excludes them. So here's the recipe that C.S. Lewis, and I believe all of the scripture is teaching us. The recipe for arise is to give first, save second, and live on what's left. That's the recipe for your rise. It's to give first, it's to save next, and to live on what's left. You see, when we live first, save what's left over from there, and then give, if anything's left over from there, it reveals a heart problem. It reveals a heart problem, and we need a change of heart. It's revealing that the focus of our finances is off. And so our challenge for you today is to fix the focus of your finances. You gotta you got, you got fix the focus. The recipe for a rise is give, save, and then live on what's left. And if we needed more reason why, Paul continues to write in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19, he says this, by doing this, by doing what? By, by rejecting these lies that we've bought and believing the truth of God's word. Everything that we just read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, all the, the lies that were confronted by the truth of God's word, by, by doing all of this, watch this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. You're, you're missing out on true, real life that God has planned for you. You're, you're missing out on the prosperity that God wants for you, his best for you. When you live and then save and then give what's left over. Here's what I think Paul is saying here. Watch this. You've got to look forward with your finances. You've got to look forward. And, and that's how you're going to build a foundation to rise on. You, you need a solid foundation, right? If, you, if you've fallen and you're trying to get back up and you're trying to rise, you, you need a solid foundation. And Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19, by, by doing these things, you're storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future. It's about storing up treasure for the future. We've got to look forward with our finances. So, so, so often our spending, the, the focus of our finances is on the here and now. It's on stuff. It's not on the future eternal things of heaven. And that just reveals we've got a heart problem. We've got a focus problem. Jesus said it like this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also 
be. And so Jesus would say, don't store up treasure on earth, store up treasure in heaven. Look forward with your finances, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Money is so unreliable. You store up treasure on earth, Jesus said, you're you're storing up treasure where moth and rust can destroy it and where thieves can break in and steal it. In other words, it can be here today and gone the next. It's unreliable. So don't store up treasure on earth, store up treasure in heaven. Look forward with your finances. Give first. Paul said about the Macedonian Christians, they, it was their first action to give themselves to the Lord and to be generous. Give first, save, and then we live on what's left. Richard Foster, popular author and theologian said this, the goal of work is not to gain wealth. It's not to raise our income or even our standard of living. He said this, the the goal of work is not to gain wealth and possessions, but it's to serve the common good and bring glory to God. That's the goal of work. That's the goal of our income. You see, most of us think a raise in our income means a raise in our standard of living. But I think what all the scripture is saying, and I think what people like C.S. Lewis and Richard Foster, wise theologians, authors, what, what, what the message of scripture is telling us, I think what God wants us to hear this morning is that a raise in income isn't going to necessarily fix anything. A raise in income isn't even to raise our standard of living, it's to raise our standard of giving. Because the more and more that we raise our standard of giving, being generous to those who are in need, helping the poor, supporting the spread of the gospel. The more you do that, that's where you're gonna experience true life. That's how you're going to rise from the, the fall. The recipe for a rise is give, save, and live all for the glory of God. This is true life. This is what your soul is longing for, not a rise in income. It's for a rise in faith. It's for a rise in trust. It's for a rise in generosity. All for the glory of God. See, here's what you've got to understand as we close. Temporary goods will never satisfy a soul designed for eternal glory. Your soul has been designed by the designer, your maker, God. Your your soul has been designed for eternity, eternal things. Ecclesiastes says it like this, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. There's a longing for things that are bigger than us, for things that are bigger than stuff. There's a longing in our soul for eternal things, for eternal glory, that temporary goods will never satisfy. And that's why when you're living for the things of heaven and you're living for the glory of God and you're giving and saving and living all for the glory of God and you're working for the glory of God and when you get a raise in income, it's for the glory of God. That's why your your soul is satisfied that regardless of how much money you make, if you're poor or rich compared to other people, it doesn't matter. You've got an overwhelming joy because you're living for the things that matter because you're living for what you were designed to live for. 
Eternity has been set in your heart and nothing less than eternal things and eternal glory will satisfy. Would you pray with me? God, I, I pray this morning that you would give us more a, a passion, a greater passion for glory than we ever have for goods. Temporary goods will never satisfy us, God. And so I, I, I pray today that you would give us a passion for glory, for the eternal things of heaven, and that we would look forward with our finances. Would you just make that your prayer? God, help me to trade my passion for goods for a passion for glory. Would you do that in my heart today, God? Give me a passion for glory, eternal glory, for the glory of God. That these goods will never satisfy. And then with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, some of you are in here today and You've never given your life to Jesus. And, and you know that because as we talk about living for the glory of God and being generous, that doesn't really excite you. That doesn't really move you. And chances are the reason it doesn't is because you've never given your life to Jesus because a follower of Jesus who has the Holy Spirit is moved in their soul by these things. God's word speaks to them and calls out to them to live for eternal things, to live for the glory of God. And, and the spirit inside of a Christian says, yes, that's what I want. It, it may not be where I'm at right now. It may not be my life right now. My life might not look like this, but that's what I want. His spirit calls to your spirit inside of you. And, and it says, yes, that's what I want. And you're moved by these things. But, but if not, then chances are you've never given your life to Jesus. And here's what you got to know this morning, that there's no good thing you can do to be right with God. God's not going to let you into heaven because your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says, salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done. So good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. And you're forgiven of your sin, the Bible says, when you give your life to Jesus because it was Jesus who died on the cross to pay your fine for sin. When you break God's law, you pay God's fine and God's fine for sin is eternity separated from him in a place called hell. And you can't be good enough. You can't do better and try harder your way into heaven. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done. Good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. And you're forgiven of your sin when you give your life to Jesus. And it's at that moment that your sin is forgiven, past, present, and future. You're made right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. When you give your life to Jesus. Romans 10, 9 says it like this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will be saved and you will go to heaven when you die. So don't leave here thinking that if you do better or try harder or come back next week, that you're going to be right with God. That's not the gospel. The gospel's not you do it's he did it's done. So give your life to Jesus today. And if that's you, jump on our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you're committing your life to Christ. We'd love to follow up with you. But God, I pray that right now in Jesus' name, God, that there would be people that are here right now that are watching online, that are giving their lives to Jesus in this moment. God, I pray that right now, 
For those of us that are followers of Jesus, that have your spirit living and dwelling inside of us, that your spirit would just ignite us and move us, God, to live for the glory of God, that we might experience true prosperity and overwhelming joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Our team's going to lead us in worship. And as they do, let's just pray for a passion for the glory of God to rise up inside of us, for faith to rise up, for trust to rise up, for generosity to rise up inside of us. Though I have fallen, I will rise.